All right, welcome to our fourth edition of this Hebrews Core Studies class. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for calling us into your kingdom. Thank you for sending your son to do what only he could do and bring a great salvation for us to save us from our fear of death and take us with him to glory. Just ask that you would open our eyes and we behold wonderful things from your word this morning. Amen. All right, so we're going to begin in the, uh, what I would say, the tougher part of Hebrews. Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 and 4 are probably nobody's favorite chapters. And the reason for that is Essentially, it's one big warning, a big chunk of it anyway. There's um, not all of it's warning, but there's a huge chunk that's considered warning that goes on for about 30 verses. And we don't like to hear warnings. I mean, warnings are no fun, right? But God puts them in Scripture for a reason. And we won't get through the whole warning. It's so big, this warning actually covers two chapters, three and four. There's no way I can get to four today. As much as I'd love to, I'd love to take this warning and can it up in one package, but we don't have two hours. We only have one, so we'll have to just chunk it a a bit here. So, um, one thing to note about chapter three. Chapter three is literally the beginning of the main portion of the letter. Everything that we've seen up to this point, one and two, was really just an introduction. A wonderful introduction, but an introduction nonetheless. This is where the author of Hebrews is getting to his main point, and this is where the rubber meets the road. We kind of know that because if you look at the first verse of chapter three, for the first time he's directly addressing the people he's writing to. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Therefore, holy brothers, first time he's even addressed his audience. He's calling them holy brothers. The first two chapters were entirely true statements about Jesus, the son, what he's done Creation, sustaining, making purification for sins, being enthroned at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, and then also, chapter 2, becoming a man, becoming lower than the angels for a little while, and identifying with people by suffering, suffering all kinds of ways, but primarily death. And then God raises him from the dead and thrones him. And the neat thing about it is when he's up there, he's not alone anymore. He's got brothers and children and sons. He brings many sons to glory. And the author carefully did not identify the readers as those brothers at that time. And there's a reason for that. He's using a literary device here. But now, now he's going to call them holy brothers. Now it's like, okay, holy brothers, 
you who share in a heavenly calling. And he starts out with essentially the first command of the book, certainly the first command of the main part of the book, chapters 3 through the end of the book, through 12. And it's this, consider Jesus. That's the main command of the book. That's the primary command of the book. That's the first command of the book. That's the essential command of the book. Consider Jesus. That's where it begins. Now, when we read this in our ESVs, you think consider Jesus sounds like a, I'll just think about him and move on. But that's not his point here. His point is consider Jesus and don't stop considering Jesus. Apply your mind to thinking about him always. And unfortunately, when we read this and we see consider Jesus, we just go, oh, consider Jesus, that's cute, let's move on. And then we read more of chapter 3 and more of chapter 4 and go, this is yucky warnings, let's move on. And we just <laughs> skip all over this whole thing. But I found one translation that I liked how they, how they, how they uh, did this. And it's not my favorite translation, but it's the NIV. And I, was, this is, I like how the NIV says it. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And that's perfect. That's what I love. That's, it's, that makes a command out of it. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And that is the point of the book. And it's a repeated theme. He actually, it's a restatement, I believe, of what he said in Hebrews 2.1. Where he said, pay close attention. Pay close attention to what we've heard. That's a similar idea. Fix your eyes on what's been, what you've heard. Here he's saying, not just fix your eyes on what you've heard, but fix your thoughts on Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, not just his words, everything about Jesus. For if you go back to the first chapter, and it, we, Jesus was first introduced, not by name, but as the Son, Remember it said God spoke to us in Son, or by through His Son is how they translate it, but I keep saying in Son. He spoke to us in Son. Jesus not only speaks words, He is Word, as John will say when he writes his Gospel, which actually he wrote his Gospel after Hebrews. So I believe he took this idea that the author of Hebrews had about God speaking to us in Son and saying, oh, in the beginning was the Word. Consider Jesus, the Word, not just what He says, yes, what He says, not just what He says, but who He is and what He's done and what He's continuing to do. So that's the main point of Hebrews. That's the foundational point of Hebrews. Every other command in Hebrews is built upon that truth. If you're not considering Jesus, the other commands are pointless. You can't do any of them. You have to be looking at him, listening to him, and wanting to obey him to do anything else properly to actually fulfill the other commands that are going to come. And we will get to at least one more of them today. Now, he says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And 
For those of you who are counting, have you ever heard any other author in Scripture tell us to consider Jesus as the apostle? And I would actually say, have you ever heard any other author in Scripture consider Jesus as a high priest? This is the first author of Scripture who has asked us to consider Jesus in the light of these two ideas of, as an apostle and as a high priest. These aren't Pauline ideas. <laughs> this is, these are like new ideas. Think about Jesus in different ways. Think about him as an apostle. Think about him as a high priest. And essentially, that's what he's doing in this letter. He's going to present his case for how we should consider Jesus as an apostle. And he's going to present his case for how we should present, consider Jesus as a high priest. That's going to actually be like the outline of the book. Now you think, well, I, I've, I've read ahead and I know he mentions the high priest a lot. But he doesn't ever mention the, the apostle again. He says it once and you never hear about it again. It's like, what does he mean by that? Well, if he's asking us, commanding us to consider Jesus as an apostle, maybe we should think about what that might mean. Because this is the first command. So what? What could this possibly mean? Apostle. Now, I always heard that the word apostle just means sent one. And then I looked it up in the Greek dictionary and realized it's not just a sent one. Somebody sent. It's, it's a... One who's sent is an envoy with extraordinary status. Extraordinary status. I'd never heard that part before. He's sent as an envoy with extraordinary status. So not just anybody who's sent is an apostle. Only those who are sent who have an extraordinary status, an extraordinary role. It's reserved for very few. We know of the apostles of Christ... They're one-offs. They're one-of-a-kinds. They have extraordinary status. What was extraordinary about them? And what's extraordinary about Jesus if you consider him as an apostle? Well, I, I wrote the two ideas I have here. That First, he's an envoy of God, which means he brings the word of God. But he does it with more authority than, than uh, the average person bringing the word of God, like, say, one of our pastors here or anyone that you've met in your life. One of the big distinctions about an apostle is that they've actually seen God face to face. All the apostles of Jesus saw God face to face. Nobody since then has, because Jesus hasn't returned as a man yet. Well, Jesus saw his father face to face for a long, 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 long time, right? He's eternal. So he's, he's an envoy who's seen, seen, that, uh, seen God face to face. God speaks directly to him. His words are God's words. So he's not, there's no intermediary between the apostle and, and God. God's words go straight to the apostle, then the apostle sends them out. 
So he's the speaker of God's word, but he also has extraordinary status. And this status is usually represented by a position of authority where he can govern, he can rule, he can bring judgment. And we saw, if you actually think about, if this is, if this is what an apostle does, and this is who an apostle is, if you think about what the author's been describing in chapters 1 and 2, I, I think he's been describing his apostolic role. He was sent by God, came a little lower than the angels. He brought the word of God. God spoke to us in Son, and he's extraordinarily positioned at the right hand of God as the eternal reigning son. He's, he's got all of the qualifications to be an apostle. So the author's actually kind of been helping us consider him as an apostle through chapters 1 and 2. And he's also going to, cons- he's going to continue that in chapters 3 and 4. Now the high priestly role... He reserves until chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Okay? So the apostolic role, 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4. The priestly role, 5 through 10, which we will not get to, unfortunately, because I have to. Next week is the last week. So all we're going to really talk about him is as, as an apostle. Now the high priestly role is, it was hinted at. And oh, by the way, one other thing about the high priestly role. The reason I'm saying he, in chapter 2, 1 and 2, he's been considered an apostle, not a high priest. The way the author of Hebrews presents the high priest is he doesn't really begin, begin his high priestly role until he's seated at the throne. Not, he's not doing a high priestly role on the earth yet. He gets to the throne first, and then, he, then he's the high priest. And you say, well, that's, I always thought he was doing a high priestly role when he was on the cross. Not according to Hebrews, because the role of the high priest he takes from the Old Testament, the high priest brings the blood already sacrificed into the holy place, right? After the sacrifice, he takes it in, and that's how Jesus serves as a high priest. We'll get to that chapter 5 and beyond. He's seated at the right hand, and he brings his sacrificial blood right to God and says, He's now the high priest, and he's performing the role of the high priest at the right hand of God forever. All right? So, the author of Hebrews is just hinting at it, and he is um, putting that off into the future. And um, But right now, he's talking about Jesus the Apostle, and he's going to move quickly into... A comparison, another comparison. And he compares Jesus in verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So now he brings up another character, Moses, not just any old character. In fact, I think why he's bringing up Moses is I think the author of Hebrews considers Moses an apostle of the Old Testament. Or the apostle of the Old Testament, not just an apostle, the apostle. And he's saying, let's consider Jesus as an apostle and compare him to the Old Testament apostle. Jesus is much better. 
He's, he's going to go down the same comparison he did in chapter 1 with the angels. Angels good, Jesus better. Moses the apostle good, Jesus the apostle better. So he's, he's following his same idea here. Now, how is Moses like an apostle? Well, think about it. There's one person in the Old Testament of whom it is credited that he spoke to God face to face. Right? And I wrote down a couple places where it says that. It says that in more than one place. Numbers 12, 7 is one. Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 12 is another. I'll go to the Deuteronomy one right now and just read that. This is the very end of Deuteronomy, and it says Moses is dying, the last few verses. And this is the conclusion of the Pentateuch, the first five books credited to Moses. And it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses was unique in the Old Testament. No prophet that rose after him spoke to God face to face. Now, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to read the Numbers 12 reference as well. I think this is another, another helpful text to help us see as, Jesus, as Moses having a special status, an apostolic kind of status. And this, this context is the other two leaders of Israel are opposing Moses, his brother and his sister. They're saying, can't God speak to us too? Why does it have to be him? And the Lord heard of it. And then this is the statement in Numbers 12. Now the man, Moses, was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, his brother and sister, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance of the tent, called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. The author of Hebrews is going to quote that momentarily. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? All right. The author of Hebrews quotes that right here in chapter 3. So I think he's having us compare the apostle Jesus to the apostle Moses. And the comparisons are, I've listed here, he's much better. All the signs of an apostle apply to both. As it says here in chapter 3, verse 2 of Hebrews, there's a key phrase, a key statement here. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful. They're both faithful to this call, this extraordinary call 
They're both faithful. They were both faithful. And this you'd only see in Greek, but the word for faithful is the same word that sometimes, oh, most of the time, is translated faith. So this is the first appearance of faith, the word faith in the, in the book of Hebrews. And you know that's going to be a big word in chapter 11, for sure. But this is where it first shows up. And you just think, that doesn't make sense. How can the word for faith and the word for faithful be the same in Greek? Uh, they just are. I mean, I can't explain that other than when I see that they use the same word to describe faith and the same word to describe faithful, that tells me that there's a link between them because the same word is describing both. And what's the link? What's the difference between faith and faithful? What do you think? Time. Time. We think of faith as like a, a now instantaneous thing. Faithful is being nowly instantaneous for a long time. You continue in that faith for a long time. If you continue in this faith for a long time, you're faithful. And it uses the same word to describe both. Whether it's talking about you, you having faith right now, or you having faith that perseveres and endures. And it's clear from the context that Jesus wasn't just a man of faith, and Moses wasn't just a man of faith. We know from Moses' experience, he was a man of faith for a long time, 40 years at least. Actually, you could say probably longer, but his call was when he was 80 years old, and he persevered in his call, his extraordinary call, until he was 120, 40 years. Jesus also, we know, is a man of faithfulness. He was faithful to his call and is still faithful to his call. So both of them exercised faith for a long time. Therefore, they're faithful. But Jesus is better than Moses in at least three ways. It says in 3.3a, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is at the right hand of God. It kind of makes sense, right? Jesus is God. Moses is not. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Jesus actually built the house. He's the creator of this house. He's going to go to this house imagery here. Jesus made this house. Moses was actually, he didn't make the house. He just served it. For every house is built by someone, verse 4, but the builder of all things is God. That, that means Jesus is the builder of this house. He, he's the creator of this house. He's the one that builds it. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, which is what we read in Numbers. That's, that's the quote from Numbers. That's exactly what, Moses, that's what Numbers says. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. God called him my servant Moses twice to Miriam and Aaron to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And part of what he said was going to be spoken later is another prophet's going to rise that's greater than me, namely Jesus. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Christ is faithful as a son, and he's over the house. Moses is faithful as a servant, and he's just part of the house. 
So Jesus is better than Moses because he has more glory than Moses, because he's the creator, he's built the house, because he's the son, the enthroned son, and Moses is a servant. Who else? Remember, the angels were servants too. Remember that? Same idea. You got the ruling son and the servant. Angels are servants. Moses, just a servant. And I, I noted one other thing. Jesus also was a high priest, and Moses wasn't. God put the high priestly role on someone else, his brother. And then we get to verse 6. Well, the second part of verse 6. Who is this house? Who is this house? We are his house. We are his house with a condition. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So we're his house. Let's consider what that house, the connotations of that house implies. Family. He uses the description of a house as a family. It's a, what, who lives in a house? A family lives in a house. And we had references to family relationships in chapter 2 that I've listed for you here. Remember chapter 2. Jesus brought many sons to glory. Verse 10. Many sons. Jesus brought many sons to glory. Verse 11. He's not ashamed to call them brothers, those sons. And he says it again in verse 12. Calls them brothers again. And in verse 17 as well. Three times in chapter 2. These, these folks are called uh, brothers. Brothers. Yeah, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So there's the 17 reference. And he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he also calls them children in verses 12 and 14. He shared flesh and blood with the children. And God gave him the children after he completed his work on earth and went to be at the right hand. And then even the reference to he helps the offspring of Abraham is a reference, I believe, to this family as well. These children are offspring of Abraham. They're of the family of Abraham. They descend from Abraham. And that'll be talked about later in Hebrews as well, starting in chapter 6. But the idea is this house is God's family. And the other thing that's interesting to note is that, as I said before, in chapters 1 and 2, we were not, he didn't call us his brothers in chapter 2. The brothers, the children, the sons, the offspring of Abraham were referred to in the third person. And now, when he starts with chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Holy brothers, surprise, you guys are brothers too, or you should be. I'm talking, I'm speaking specifically to holy brothers. So chapter three, it's like, okay, you guys, the brothers I was talking about in chapter two, the seed of Abraham, the children, the sons, that's you. You can see the links here, the way he uses this. Not only are the brothers, um, They're holy brothers. 
he calls them he calls us holy brothers and back into um which one is it sanctified where it says sanctified 11 to 11 for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source those who are sanctified well the words for sanctify and the word holy are basically the same greek root they're not the same greek word but they have the same root the holy ones are the sanctified ones the set apart ones for god's purposes so he's saying holy brothers meaning sanctified brothers that's the idea what i talked about in chapter two you you holy brothers now another thing he states here in addressing these holy brothers is he says they are those who share in a heavenly calling the holy brothers verse one you who share in a heavenly calling you're the ones that should be considering jesus share in a heavenly calling now that word share is going to show up later in chapter three 314 in particular and i'll get to that next but I want you to note that you share in a heavenly calling, the word calling. And remember what he said in chapter 2. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus called his brothers, and he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Called them into the family, and he's happy to continue to call them brothers. Because they're sanctified. They've been made holy. That's what Jesus did when he rose from the dead and went to the right hand. He brought an assembly of brothers with him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you guys are those brothers. And I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Then, the conditional statement at the end of verse 6. He's essentially saying, you are brothers, but not all of you. Some of you may not be brothers. You who are in this community of Hebrew believers, you're brothers, but maybe not all of you. Some of you aren't acting like brothers. Some of you don't look like brothers. Some of you aren't behaving like brothers. And what's, what's the defining characteristic of those who are brothers? If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Those who are brothers are like their big brother, Christ, who was faithful over all his house. That statement there, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, is essentially how I would take it. They're faithful. Those who are in God's house and who are faithful, meaning faithful over time. Remember, faithful is over time. They hold fast to their confidence and their boasting of hope to the end. Now, he doesn't say to the end right here, but he will in verse 14. I want you to compare verse 6b to verse 14 of chapter 3. 
and it's almost the same. And there's a, we have to compare them. You have to. They're, they're saying the same thing slightly differently. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, verse 6. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So you see the word confidence. You see the if indeed we hold. So what they have in common is that we hold fast and they have the confidence in but the difference in 14, it says firm to the end. The original confidence, firm to the end. This is what true brothers look like. They look like this. If you indeed have this confidence and this boasting of hope and this original confidence, firm to the end, you're one of the holy brothers. And verse 14 says, you've come to share in Christ. Share in Christ, which links back to verse 1. You who share in a heavenly calling. So these, these three verses are just linked linguistically here. 3.1, the command. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Verse 6, we are his house, the brothers, the holy brothers, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And verse 14, also... We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. All right? You see the connections there? And I'm, I'm piecemealing this on purpose. This is a difficult section to get through, but I want you to see the big, the positive side of it. This is the positive side of it. Everything else in the middle is the negative side. He's going to help us see this is what it looks like to be a brother, and then in the middle... He's going to show this is what it looks like for those who prove not to be brothers. And and basically the difference is, just to sum it all up, the brothers are faithful to the end and the not-so-brothers are not. That's the difference. The brothers, when they're faithful to the end and those who are not are not faithful to the end. They may be faithful in the beginning, but they're not faithful to the end. Something comes up and they cease to be faithful. We'll get to that part later. I want to compare the two positives right now, as I've got here in my notes. Those who are the house remain faithful just like Christ. This is my uh, page three, right? Christ was faithful in the past and he remains faithful from now on. He's faithful forever. Well, the brothers in the house... Are two. They hold fast to faith in Christ. And that's how I've summed it up. They too hold fast to faith in Christ. And then I'm going to compare all these words here. This is like little mini word studies because it's all kinds of cool words going on here. And I'm just going to make the statement they all are related to living by faith. They're all faith related, all of them. And the first one that shows up in 6b is confidence. They hold fast with confidence. Okay? Now that word confidence shows up three more times in Hebrews, and I listed them there for you. 416, 1019, 1035. 416 is a famous one that you all have memorized. How can you not know this one? 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence. So you hold fast to that confidence. Those who hold fast to that confidence and will, as we see later, use it to continually draw near to the throne of grace. The confidence enables us to draw near to the throne of grace. I think we had a sermon on this last week, actually. Confidence. You remember that? Confidence. Helmet of salvation. That was the big point. Confidence. We have confidence in our salvation. Well, that's what this confidence is based upon. What Jesus has done, his finished work, gives us this confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. And in 1019, they're just worth going over because they're just beautiful. All these confidence scriptures. Four different times it's stated. 1019. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there it is again, and then he says just a little bit later, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Assurance, that's a related word. Assurance of faith. So he's going to repeat it again in chapter 10. Draw near with confidence. And then he's got a nice little exhortation at the end of 10, which I, I, I will actually, I like this verse. Therefore, after all I've told you, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't hold on to this confidence. You're stupid if you throw it away. You're dumb. Hold on to your confidence. So it's important. Those who are in the house have confidence firm until the end. Don't throw it away. All right. The next phrase that is used in, back in, chapter, in verse 6b is, is an interesting one. Boasting and hope. Hold fast to your boasting and hope. In, in, in hope. And you can say, well, we're, we've been told not to boast. But it's not boasting in ourselves. It's boasting in Jesus. Boasting in what he's done for us. Right? That's, that's the boasting he means. Don't just say, oh, boasting is bad. Boasting, bad, evil. We're supposed to hold fast to boasting, but read the, what comes after it. In hope. And where do you put your hope? Do you put your hope in yourself? If you put your hope in yourself and you boast in yourself, yes. That's not good. But if you put your hope in the one who's seated at the right hand, interceding for you, according to chapter 7, verse 25, as a high priest, um, that's, that's, you can boast in that. In fact, you should boast in that. In fact, that's what Christians should do. They should be boasting in Jesus and the hope he provides for them. They don't boast in themselves. They, they boast in him. I just wrote a couple. Paul said something similar, especially when he was being attacked by the Corinthians. I just wrote him down there. 1 Corinthians one thirty-two is a good one where he says, Basically the same thing. First Corinthians one thirty-two, and he also says it in Second Corinthians ten. Same thing. And he's, when he says this, he's actually quoting from a psalm. Okay, Paul's not just making it up either. He's quoting straight from Psalm one sixteen. And so it is written in Psalm one sixteen: Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. <laughs> Boast in the Lord. 
And the author of Hebrews is saying, those who are in the house are boasting in the Lord. Boasting in their hope. Now both of these, these words actually, the confidence and the boasting and hope, they have a speech element to them. They Obviously boasting is speaking. But if you, if you look at the word for confidence a little deeper, the one that I, we just went over, its, its definition is also one of boldness, courage, and fearlessness in speech. It, there's a speech element that's not translated here. It doesn't really need to be because the boasting kind of picks it up, the next word. But they both imply there's a confession going on. Those who are in the house are confessing, continually confessing this hope. They're boasting in the hope, the reason for their confidence. They're speaking it, but I think they're speaking doing more than speaking it with words, they're also speaking it with their lives, with their actions. Which is also why when I go back to Jesus, did the same thing. God spoke to us in Son, in chapter 1, verse 2 of Hebrews. It wasn't just the words of Jesus that he spoke to us by. He spoke to us by the person of Jesus and his actions, his deeds. All of that was the speech of God. And the same thing for those who are in the house who have the Son as the head of us. If we're in the house, the confession of our words, the confession of our lives, the confession of our attitudes towards life in general, speech, speech that projects confidence in God and boast in his hope, and it's on view for the world to see. So those who are in the house become like the son who was that way also, confessing, speaking forth the glory of God, speaking forth the gospel, speaking forth this great salvation. And then uh, I made another little comparison with faith here. If you remember the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Sounds a whole lot like this verse without using the word assurance. Confidence, boasting, and hope. So if you link this verse to Hebrews 11.1, 1, I think you see where I got my connection that those who are in the house hold fast to faith because Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith with these very words, these very ideas. Those who are in the house are, have faith and they hold fast to that faith and they continue in that faith firm unto the end, which gets us to verse 14, the other one. Because it says firm until the end. It actually says it's not just a faith right now. It's a faith, the original confidence, firm until the end. Now what's interesting is the, the word translated confidence in our English translations at verse 14 is a different word. A different word than the one that was in 3, 
6. And this is this is the this is a very interesting word. It's actually the word hypostasis, which I, I didn't put this in the notes, did I? No. Hypostasis was the remember in chapter one, verse two, it said uh, Jesus, the word, the son. It said the son is the exact imprint of his nature. The word for nature is hypostasis. Jesus is the exact imprint of his hypostasis, his nature, his essence. And that's the word that shows up here in 314. If we hold fast to the original essence, and you go, what? Well, that word hypostasis shows up one other place in Hebrews. It showed up in... 1, 2, shows up in Hebrews 3.14, and it's going to show up again in Hebrews 11.1. 1. The second part of 11.1 1 says, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. That's hypostasis. Again, faith is the essence of things not seen. Faith is the reality of things not seen, the nature of things not seen. Faith, that, that's, that's, I have to stop that because that's Hebrews 11 and I could go on Hebrews 11 forever. But it links 3.14 to 11. He's saying you'll hold fast to that original faith, that essence, firm to the end. You hold fast to that original conviction. If you want to use the word in 11.1, you can do that. Hold fast to the original conviction, assurance, belief that this is true, that this is real, which is what the essence of faith is. If you hold fast to that, firm to the end, you're in the house. Congratulations. You're in the house. All right? That's the conditions. But he put an if in front of both of them because there's a lot of people who are in our house, who think they're in our house, who just might not hold on to the end like that. They'll show to be not in the house at some point. They'll depart from the faith. And the author of Hebrews is afraid that some of the people he's writing to are doing just that. And that's why he's writing this book. He's writing this letter to get their attention and say, okay, this is what it's like to be in the house. If you are not persevering, beware. Warning, warning. And that's, that's what he's going to do here. He's going to go off on this warning. And I've got to bring it to an end. Well, good. I left the, 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 less, the less fun part to last. And he does the warning by quoting Psalm 95. And I like, and Psalm 95, he's going to talk about for chapters 3 and 4. But I like how he just uses it as if it's not Psalm 95. He uses it as if it's his own words. And I think it's neat that he starts out by saying it this way. The Holy Spirit says... That's how he begins the quote. The Holy Spirit says right now, 
He's speaking to you right now from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is words to you right now. That's the way we should consider Scripture, by the way. You read Scripture, and it's as if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. And he gives an example, a quote from from, uh, Hebrews 95, or Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Going back to the Moses example. Your fathers in the wilderness. Moses was the apostle of that house. They heard my voice. And yet they didn't obey it. They rebelled against it. I think I've listed a whole bunch of things they did from this section alone. Somewhere in here. Or did I? First four. Yeah, four. There it is. Do not be like your fathers in the wilderness. They rebelled, they put God to the test, which also means, so they they didn't obey, and they didn't believe what God said, so they're testing him, like, oh, you say that? Test, test. Even as they saw his works for 40 years, they saw proof that he was legit, and everything he said was sure, and yet, really, really, prove it, prove it. They always went astray in their heart. They never knew my ways, which actually means they never experienced my ways. They never really experienced me. They never really experienced a relationship with God. And ultimately, they experienced God's wrath. He swears, they'll never enter my rest. That's all next week's stuff. But that's what happened to those who did not stay in faith. They did not stay in faith. They fell out. They proved not to be in the house. They, their bodies literally fell in the wilderness is what it, what it will say here later in chapter 3 and 4. And that's, that's the counter example of those who are in the house stay in the faith. Those who are not in the house are like the Israelites who fell in the wilderness. Don't be like them. Now, I, the last little thing here. Before he gets to 14, he gives two commands. Two commands. Verse 12 and 13 are two commands. One is take care, brothers, and the other is exhort one another every day. Now, I think this is not the response I would have thought of upon hearing this warning of make sure you're in the house. Don't harden your hearts. I'm thinking about myself. I don't want to harden my hearts. I don't want to go astray in my heart. And what's the first thing out of his mouth? Take care, brothers, lest there be any around you. Look around you. Actually, the word take care is look. Look. It's literally look. Look out. It's a look out warning, but it's a look. Look at one another and know that there might be evil, unbelieving hearts around you. And do your part to make sure they don't become like the guys in the wilderness. That's what's surprising to me. His first command is, don't look at yourselves. Look at your brothers and look for, this, look for these warning signs. Look for these warning signs and encourage them. Encourage them. 
That's the first command he comes out of the warning with. He's going to have more. But this, the first one is exhort one another. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Right now, exhort one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And you just got to recognize that that's, that's kind of counterintuitive to our culture today. We're so into ourselves, and, and our American culture is take care of yourself and isolate yourself and present the best side of yourself. But the truth of the matter is, is we tend to drift. We tend to go astray on our own. We, we tend to become like those who are in the wilderness. And we, we, there's a danger for us in the house of being laid waste in the wilderness with the wrath of God upon us. And how, what's the first antidote to this? Is help your brothers out when you see it. Help your brothers out when you see it. Now, how do you do that? You have to be in the company of brothers. You have to be, you have to have people in your life that you're doing life with who can recognize this and encourage you and exhort you and admonish you in faith and in love, in love. To recognize the sin and recognize the drift and recognize the oncoming hardness of heart and repent of it. So the first command in this warning is be aware of this and look about and exhort one another as long as it's called today. Every day. Exhort, encourage, admonish if necessary. Live life together with one another. To keep this from happening. Look out of yourselves. Look at them and help your brothers. Put your brothers ahead of yourself. Right? Consider your brothers more important than yourself when it comes to this. That's what he's saying. It's a call to stop looking at yourself. First look to others. And he will get to what we do to ourselves in the verses to come, but he starts with that. So the antidote to hardness of heart is encouragement and admonishment from others. Or to others. Or to others. Which is kind of an interesting idea that if I want to guard against hardness in my own heart, the first thing I need to do is look out for my brothers. Yes. It's interesting. It's not intuitive, but it's true. You get caught up with your own hardness, start thinking of others, and I bet you your hardness will melt. Good point. And also, they'll probably speak into your heart too and catch it if you don't see it. That's the other thing is we tend to be blind to our own sins. We have our blind spots. Other people can see them a lot quicker than us. They can see the hardness and kind of warn you like, sound a little bit myth there. Oh, Okay. Let me deal with that. And of course, you humbly respond. If you're in the house, you can humbly respond and repent. If you're not in the house, you just continue to grow hard until your body is wasted in the wilderness. But it's not our role to judge. It's not our role to look at people and go, oh, they're falling off. Stay away from them. I don't want what they got. Right? That's, that's another bad response. That person's going off the rails. 
<laughs> train wreck, let's stay away. No, it's like go to them and help them stay on the rails. It's just, that's, that's what it's saying to do. It. Go to them and help them. Don't run away and think, oh, fire, flames, stay away. Don't touch me. So that's another application. Look to others and help them. Pray for them, encourage them, admonish them. All right, I think my time is up. So I will close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Please encourage us to take confidence in our faith in you, but also to be aware of our tendency to drift and to look out for others as they drift and to encourage them with these words that you're in the house. You have no reason to drift. You have the great high priest. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.